0: Okay, I probably should get started trying to do a mini-view of the whole book of Revelation um, here in the next 45 minutes, so I realized I bit off way more than I can chew here with this lecture, but we're going to try to um, get through some material. Uh, We won't meet uh, next week, and the week after that is spring break, so I hope you all have a good time, and so uh, actually our next Bible study will be, I think, the 31st, something like that. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Father, we just ask that for each person here that you would give us um, clarity of mind and thought, Uh, help us to, uh, as always, our desire is to see you more clearly, to see what you're like, Uh, help us to understand uh, this message from Isaiah and Revelation uh, just now. Amen. Okay, well, two weeks ago, uh, we talked about Isaiah as it relates to Revelation. And we're going to kind of um, expand on that again. It's amazing how many parallels there are between Isaiah and the book of Revelation. Uh, I mentioned last time the uh, hiding under the rocks uh, at the second coming. Well, that's that's from Isaiah. Um, The fire that burns forever and ever, that's from Isaiah. There's even uh, apocalyptic literature uh, in the book of Isaiah. And so we're going to come back to this again. And uh, I just put this in here at the last minute. I just realized here that uh, I'm going to make some, some claims here in this lecture that I would like about three hours to back up a little bit more. So for those of you that would just like to do a little more reading here, this uh, website, godscharacter.com, if you cl- click on this uh, selected topics, um, there are some articles that expand a little bit on uh, what we're talking about here. So last time we spent a long time talking about Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah came into God's presence. Okay, And we have these six-winged creatures and they're calling out holy 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 the lord almighty is holy his glory fills the world i tried to make the case that um it was certainly this is directly from revelation we we have uh, the opening chapters in, in revelation after the seven churches same song 6 winged creatures singing holy 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 okay so there's a lot of parallel and i tried to make the case last time that uh, this is referring to uh, the son of god here on his throne, okay? And uh, what's interesting here is uh, Isaiah initially opens up with this scene of great majesty, God on his throne, okay? But then we read on to the end of the book, and, of course, we come to the suffering servant, okay? So we have uh, kind of what could seem like contrasting images, God in all of his glory, power, might, he's sovereign, okay? That's in the beginning of Isaiah. And then in the end, we have this... uh, individual here, a servant who grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field, nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on, passed over, a man who suffered. Okay, and we're talking about God here, uh, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. This is the message uh, Bible translation. And so, um, last time we kind of talked about here that... um, one way of looking at this is no question God is all-powerful, okay, and, and not too many religious people doubt God's power, okay, but what we need to put on an equal plane, okay, is God's love, his humility, his kindness, all of these things that we see are revealed in Jesus. God is infinite in power, but he's also infinite in humility, graciousness, all of those things we see uh, about the character of God in Jesus. And we can make that same point from uh, the book of Revelation. I'm just going to give a quick review of what we did last time. After we have this message to the seven churches, okay, then there's this open door in heaven. We'll come back to this. And a voice that sounded like a trumpet. And so John is taken up here through this open door. And there in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it. His face gleamed like such precious stones as Jasper, Carnelian. And again, it's the same description as in Isaiah. Six-wing creatures all singing around the throne. Okay, but then remember what happens. We have, then God is perceived as a slaughtered lamb. So remember, we have this uh, God sitting on the throne. And John saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was nothing written on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? remember we said last time this is kind of unusual isn't it god is holding the scroll and the question is asked who is worthy you know it would seem like well this is a pretty obvious question here god's holding the scroll he's worthy he should open it okay but then surprisingly no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it and then john began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it And we just imagine the scene there with god holding the scroll and no one is worthy to open it. Okay, and what happened here then is that one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And again, I would see the meaning here not as the father gets off the throne, now the son sits on the throne. Okay, this is an understanding, I think, of who God is. Yes, God's all-powerful, but as the story unfolds, look at the one on the throne. He's a a slaughtered lamb. Okay, this is more than just an identification. Oh, now we're talking about Jesus. Okay, the term here, the violently slaughtered lamb, which I understand is uh, perhaps the best way to... Uh, translate this uh, from the Greek, it says something about the character of the person who's on the throne. And kind of to back that up, we talked last time about, again, just to imagine this, God is on the throne in all his glory. He holds a scroll. He's surrounded by four living creatures and 24 elders. No one's worthy to open the scroll. And then we have the violently slaughtered lamb. And when God is perceived like that, okay, notice what happens. Now there's a new song Okay, how literally do we want to take this? Uh, a different hymn is being sung. This is a new understanding, a new song. And now the result is, I heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, every living creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below, the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they're all singing this new song. Okay, so um, perhaps rather than getting caught up on specifying who the four living creatures are, who the 24 elders are. Certainly the big picture here is we have this amplification of, of praise. Okay, When God is perceived here as the slaughtered lamb, the all-powerful one on the throne, uh, then we have this uh, this incredible uh, new song. Okay? And so as I said last time, the book of Revelation is, is painting this picture. This is the central image of the book of Revelation. Okay? What follows after... Uh, this description of the slaughtered lamb on the throne—we have the seven trumpets, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Okay, but uh, as many um, Revelation scholars have, have written, this is really this is the central image. Here's God on the throne, violently slaughtered lamb, and what we have contrasted through the whole rest of the book of Revelation uh, is this dragon. Okay, and so we're, we're to contrast here God uh, and the enemy. Okay, so uh, our takeoff point here from uh, the book of Isaiah, of course, is this poem in Isaiah 14. We read quickly last time. Um, I understand from people that, um, that um, really are experts in Hebrew that this is the, the most carefully constructed, uh, most beautiful uh, poem in the entire Old Testament. At least many have claimed that. And it, uh, it fits the, the genre of uh, funeral poems. Okay, and so this is a poem that's to be read uh, at someone's funeral. Okay, so we'll just read this here and and consider the meaning. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining one, son of the dawn. We said last time Jerome in Latin translated this as Lucifer, but O shining one, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and you see the, the aspirations here, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Okay, and so um, we talked last time, but just the the opposite trajectory here of Jesus going down, down, down. And we have the, the adversary here desperately trying to go the opposite direction. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the abyss. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who would not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like lonesome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trampled underfoot you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, you have killed your people. Now, this uh, this verse, uh, this passage um, in Isaiah is amplified so much uh, in the book of Revelation. It's very compact here in Isaiah. It's incredibly expanded on in the book of Revelation. I know we've read this many, many times in this Bible study. It's, uh, at least for me, such a foundational understanding of... Uh, our world and the way it is, but this war that broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown out and and again, there's no doubt we're going to name this huge dragon, the ancient serpent. Hey, doesn't that bring us back to the Garden of Eden? Name the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. Again, same... Description in Isaiah, thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. Okay, so um, Revelation takes off on this passage here in Isaiah and, and builds on it. And so um, what I'm going to do is try to present just a, a very big picture of the theme of Revelation. And I think uh, we really get too hung up on the detail. I mean, the details are important in Revelation, but, you know, you can spend years going through slowly and methodically reading the book of revelation trying to identify every head every horn try to find a specific uh, historical reference but you know back in the um when this book was written what happened someone got in church and they stood up and they read the whole book you heard it in one city okay? it really doesn't take that long to read through the whole book of revelation and so we we need to try to get the big picture and so this war in heaven revelation 12 through 14 Uh, many um, Revelation experts have said, this is really, once we get past the seven churches and there's the slaughtered lamb on his throne, it's this cosmic conflict that is the center of the rest of the book. So just a few quotes here. This first one's from Dr. Tonstead, but the likelihood that Revelation has a chiastic structure that puts the war of the ages at the center of the chiasm sets this section apart as the one that gives perspective to the entire narrative. Okay, and others have said this section of the book stands out as a fresh beginning, an uncharacteristically abrupt fresh start, and the pinnacle of the apocalyptic prophecy. So many have seen this, this war in heaven as really a, a center, and this, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, they all kind of revolve around an understanding of this war in heaven, the cosmic conflict, and, and what the issues are in the war in heaven. So... Um, What I'm going to try to go over here a little bit is we have this uh, war in heaven, okay, and then we have the the bowls, um, trumpets, and seals, okay, that all kind of revolve around this. And I talked about this last time briefly, but, you know, traditionally we understand these as occurring chronologically. First we have the seals in a linear timeline, then we have the trumpets in a linear timeline, then we have the bowls in a linear timeline. But... Um, there are a number of problems with that. I mean, the, the seals end with a description, what sounds like the second coming, and the seals end with the description of God wiping tears from every eye. Okay, that's the end of the book of Revelation. Um, and there's just a number of things. They all seem to end on this same point. Yeah, I read this last time, but I want to. what I'm gonna, about to present, it kind of depends on at least being aware of this uh, paradigm, that the seventh seal here ends with a scene at the golden altar, okay and then we have rumblings peals of thunder flashes of lightning and an earthquake okay the seventh trumpet ends with a scene at the covenant box okay just like the golden altar here and the exact same thing flashes of lightning rumbles and peals of thunder an earthquake and heavy hail we have the seventh plague that ends with a loud voice from the throne in the temple so all of these have uh, uh, temple imagery and then the same thing here, flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder and a terrible earthquake. They all seem to end here at the same point. Okay, and just a little, a little more evidence for that. I mentioned this last time, not a great movie, but it, it's kind of illustrating the point, this assassination of the president here and the, the vantage point that you get this uh, in this movie, you get one view of the assassination, then you go back in time and you get someone else's perspective. Now, the movie does move forward chronologically, but it's kind of, you're getting it from different um, angles. And I said also, another way of looking at the book of Revelation, it's like a symphony. You have a theme. Okay, and as the symphony goes on, you have variations on the theme. You have a new dimension brought in. Okay, yes, it climaxes, it builds to an end, but what we're seeing is variations on a theme uh, throughout the piece. So there's a little more evidence for this. Look at the first four, first four trumpets. Notice they're poured out on the earth, the sea, rivers and springs, sun, moon, and stars. Now, is it just coincidental that here in the bowl sequence, we have the bowls poured out on exactly the same order, earth, sea, rivers and springs, sun, moon, and stars, okay, coincidence, or are we supposed to see overlapping features here? Is it coincidental that the sixth trumpet here, that we have released the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River, and it just so happens here that when we get to the sixth bowl, that the angel pours out the bowl on the great Euphrates River. I mean, so many of these things can be seen as, uh, as in parallel, overlapping. Okay, but that, that doesn't really accurately um, uh, describe it, because yes, there's repetition, Okay, but there's also very much progression in the storyline in Revelation. It's not just um, purely overlapping. And just from examples of that, in the fourth seal... We'll come back and talk about the seals. But the rider on the pale horse, okay, they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill by war, famine, disease, wild animals. Okay, one-fourth. When we get to the um, trumpet sequence, everything is one-third. One-third of everything is destroyed. And everything, uh, 14 times, one-third, is used here in the trumpet sequence. And then by the time we get to the bowls, every living creature in the sea died. Okay, so we go from one-fourth to one-third to everything. So there's repetition, but yet there's also progression. And again, I think a a symphonic piece would would be perhaps our best way of of picturing this. Okay, another um, thought here about the, uh, the progression in Revelation. When we have the seal sequence, we have this description of the winds are held back because the people are not yet sealed. Okay, we move on to the trumpets. Okay, now they have the mark of God's seal on their foreheads. And now the winds are no longer held back, and the command is given to release the four winds. So that's, that's progression. And then, of course, when we get to the bowls again, the wrath of God has ended. Okay? So there's overlap, but there's also a forward-moving story. Okay, last point on that. So the, we have the war in heaven, described in Revelation 12. And I said the, the other three sequences expand on that. So let's uh, just go to the trumpet sequence here. And notice the third trumpet that we have this large star burning like a torch which fell from heaven, okay? Is that not supposed to be an allusion here to uh, the fall described in Revelation 12? Most of your Bibles in this uh, third trumpet will have a little footnote, Isaiah 14, okay? The great fall uh, from heaven, same thing. but, But notice here, we have initially this large star which fell from heaven. Okay, but we move on to the fifth trumpet. Now I saw a star which had fallen down to earth, and it was given the key to the abyss, and it describes the activity of this star. So it's describing a story. Yes, it fell. Here, that's in the third trumpet. And now the activity, it had fallen, is described in the fifth trumpet. And in case we have any doubt, we mentioned the ancient serpent of old. It's spelled out in such detail in Revelation 12. Well, the this uh, being that fell is also specified for us quite clearly um, here in the trumpet sequence. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon in Greek. The name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. Okay, so uh, this, this seems to be, again, spelled out for us. And then when we move to the end of the book, Revelation 20, okay, notice here that in the, in the, in the fifth trumpet, who has the key to the abyss? It's this star which had fallen. It has the key to the abyss. Okay, but we move forward in the story here to the end of the book. Now we have another angel coming down from heaven, and this angel has the key to the abyss. Okay, and the star that had fallen, the dragon, and once again specified, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, now he's thrown into the abyss. So the, the descent of Satan in Isaiah, remember we said he's fallen from heaven to earth, and then he falls into the abyss. Okay, this is described, again, in much more expanded detail here in Revelation. Yes, he fell from heaven to earth. Okay, he does some things that are described in Revelation. But he, again, in Revelation, just like in Isaiah, completes his descent down into the um, abyss. Okay, so it's a forward-moving story. So um, uh, I mentioned last time, at least for me, the, the great significance in incorporating a cosmic conflict. God has an enemy okay and uh, this is so much new testament jesus own words about satan the prince of this world paul the god of this age small g the ruler of the kingdom of the air and then in first john the whole world is under control of the evil one so i think we we really have a, we're, we're missing out if we're trying to describe human suffering uh, all the things horrible things that go on uh, day in and day out in our world unless we incorporate a demonic reality so here's a book. I was talking with some of you about this. Uh, the Adjustment Bureau. Um, I saw this just a couple nights ago, and it's very interesting. I think um, uh, we should have everyone watch it and then have a discussion about it, but it's, uh, you know, uh, basically the, the idea here is, uh, well, Matt Damon uh, falls in love with this woman, and it just turns out that uh, that wasn't God's plan. Well, God is never used, I don't think, in the movie. He's the chairman, okay, but the the plan here is not for these two to get together and so every time Matt Damon would try to do something to meet up with a woman all, all these funny things would happen uh, these men in hats are always kind of getting in the way okay and uh, what what the, the the movie is trying to I think uh, stimulate thoughts about here is what we tend to say God well at least many would say God does everything okay if we, if we go out and rob a liquor store well that's somehow part of God's plan or that uh, every little minutia, day in and day out, it's all micromanaged and controlled by God. And so the the movie kind of stimulates. Well, how much free will do we really have? How much does God control all of our activities? But uh, what all of these movies leave out is there's never there's never an opposing side. Okay, so the, there's certainly no uh, suggestion of a, of a demonic reality in this movie. Okay, and that's been largely neglected entirely. Okay, Satan is uh, not a figure of much interest um, for most. Okay, and um, this I find very interesting. This is from the philosopher Celsus, written in the second century, around 150. And he criticized the early Christians for this belief. Okay, and, and the reason, this is significant for several reasons. One is it suggests this was what the early Christians felt to uh, This was their worldview. And Celsus would say their utter stupidity can be illustrated in any number of ways, but especially with their misreading of the divine enigmas and their insistence that there exists a being opposed to God, whom they know by the name devil. But they, the Christians, show how utterly concocted these ideas are when they go on to say that the highest God in heaven, desiring to do such and such, say, confer some great gift on man, cannot fulfill his purpose because he is opposed and thwarted by a God who is his opposite. Does this mean that the Son of God can be beaten by a devil? So we have a hard time wrapping our minds around an all-powerful God who has an enemy. If God's all-powerful, why doesn't he snuff him out? Okay, and so uh, for Celsus, this was ridiculous, that God would have a real foe. Okay, and um, so, but that's, that's, I think, uh, what we're trying to wrap our minds around. So let's come back here now. And I want to just go through very, it's dangerous to do this quickly, okay? But I want to go through quickly here the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And let's see, can we incorporate uh, here a cosmic conflict uh, into these three sequences? So again, we said um, we have the seven churches. And I just find it interesting here that the, a church that is not criticized, Philadelphia, okay, they have an open door in front of them. The Laodiceans obviously would have a closed door here because God is described as saying, Look, I stand at the door and knock. And you're all familiar with the famous picture of this. Okay, and so we have open door for Philadelphia, closed door for Laodicea. And at this point, John sees an open door in heaven. And we get this spectacular scene. There's God on his throne. Okay, and then there's the slaughtered lamb on the throne. Okay, so from that central image, uh, we move into the seals. Okay, and uh, what do we remember we want to find an Old Testament reference for just everything that we're going to look at in the Revelation and many have seen that uh, the seals in Ezekiel are a are, are reference here for the seals that are described in Revelation both seals in, in Revelation they're covered with writing on both sides and in Ezekiel Ezekiel saw that there was writing on both sides of this scroll okay and uh, are the seals here are they a good thing Well, for Ezekiel, notice, cries of grief were written there, wails and groans. This would not appear to be a good uh, reality um, here that's that's on this scroll. Okay, so what's being described here in the seals? Well, of course, we have four riders that go out. Okay, and the first one here is a white horse. So instinctively, you know, anything that's white, that, that must be a good reality. And its rider held a bow. He was given a crown. He rode out as conqueror uh, to conquer. Okay, who is that describing? Well, uh, again, if we go back to Ezekiel, there's another writer uh, with a bow. Okay, I'm gonna try to make a point that that this is uh, describing here this cosmic conflict, and the writer here is not good. Okay, mortal man denounce Gog, the chief ruler of the nations, and so on, and tell him that I am his enemy. I will turn him in a new direction and lead him out of the far north until he comes to the mountains of Israel. And then I will knock his bow out of his left hand and his arrows out of his right hand." Now, there are some other um, details for why people have, some have associated this rider on the white horse holding a bow in Revelation with this rider in Ezekiel. Uh, But I'm not gonna uh, go through all of that. Uh, I think there's a better case, though, that we we can make for that. Because notice what happens here. We move on to the second seal. Is this a good reality? Okay, the second horse goes out. It was fiery red. Its rider was given the power to take peace away from the earth. And that wouldn't be a good reality. To make people slaughter one another. So he was given a large sword. And by the time we get to the fourth seal, I looked, and there was a pale colored horse. Its rider was named Death. Clearly, they're not a good reality here. Hades followed close behind, and they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill by means of war, famine, disease, and wild animals. Okay, so uh, one way of looking at this, uh, admittedly not the most common way of looking at this, is to see that who is that rider on the white horse? Well, by the time we get to the fourth horse, um, perhaps the same rider, but now it becomes clear. And remember, even Satan can disguise himself to look like an angel of light, okay? And we have this description then of, you know, God is holding back the winds, But when we come back to the cosmic conflict here described in Revelation 12 and 13, that Satan here was allowed to wage war against God's holy people to conquer them. Okay, it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Everyone living on earth will worship it. That's pretty sobering. Everyone living on earth will worship it. Okay, so um, I'm making this claim. I think we we can... uh, perhaps make a better case for this when we get to the trumpet sequence, that the first, first four seals highlight the destructive reign of Satan, war, famine, persecution, death. Remember, what is Satan? He's a deceiver. If you're a deceiver, you, you cloak you know, what you're really up to. And so then it makes sense that in this context, what is the fifth seal? I won't read this, but what is the fifth seal? This is really a Theodicy 101. Why? God, how can you allow this to happen? How long before you intervene and do something? Okay, it's the natural question to ask after everything that's gone on here with the four uh, previous seals and horses. Okay, and so we ask the question here, uh, why does God allow uh, the enemy to wreak such havoc? And uh, um, one quote here from Jesus, and then a few other quotes on that. Jesus told this parable, which I'll just mention briefly. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field, didn't plant any bad seed. But that night as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. Okay, and here the point of the story is, well, an enemy has done this. Okay, but why didn't God just rip out the weeds? Good question. Well, should we pull out the weeds? And he said, no, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. And we have a harvest scene also, you know, in Revelation. Everything comes, uh, ripens fully, okay? So if God is going to intervene and just destroy evil and destroy the evil one, okay, apparently that would be counterproductive if it's done uh, prematurely. Okay, and so this is, uh, I think, an incredible quote from Dr. Tonsted's book, his explanation of why God has allowed this cosmic conflict uh, to go on so long. Dr. Tonsted would say, the repeated identification as Satan as the deceiver solicits an understanding of the means by which the uprising must be overcome. As a deceiver, Satan wins support for his cause and program by something other than what he truly represents. That, that would be the nature of a deceiver. If this is the case, the simple demolition of the deceiver will not suffice unless or until his true character has become manifest. Such a perception of the cosmic conflict depends on the presentation of evidence for its resolution. To the extent that the deceiver wins support by purporting to be what he is not, he must be unmasked by evidence. To the contrary, what is that evidence? Notice, by the evidence of his own actual deeds. To the extent that the deceiver gains influence by slandering his opponent, okay, isn't that what happened at the tree, his cause will unravel if the actual deeds of his opponent turn out to be different from what the slanderer has made them out to be. Isn't that what we see in Jesus? Okay, did anyone expect God to look like Jesus? Okay, but it's not just the evidence of who God is, it's also the evidence of the adversary. The crucial point relates to the fact that a conflict of this nature cannot be resolved by force. Inevitably, this requirement exposes at least one troubling risk that is intrinsic to the non-use of force. If the deceiver is partly to be unmasked by the evidence of his own actions, it means that he will be granted the opportunity to bring his design to fruition. Satan must be allowed to commit evil for his evil character to be manifest. And I like his last sentence here. The political risk to the divine, typo there, divine government of this projected policy, not to mention the theologic risk, hardly needs to be elaborated. And isn't that the big, uh, probably number one thing that keeps people away from God? It is, well, why did this happen? You know, all of this suffering. How could a powerful God uh, allow this to go on? Okay, but we're, we're trying to maybe understand uh, some, some core issues that, that surround that. So we have this writer in the seal sequence, and then the book of Revelation ends with another writer. And now there's no ambiguity about who this writer is. His name is Faithful and True. It's almost like we're contrasting. That other writer uh, was not Faithful and True. And notice, he doesn't have a sword in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. What does that mean? Truth. Evidence, I mean, God's means of winning the cosmic conflict. It's coming out of his mouth. Okay, that's very significant. And he has a robe covered with blood. Okay, whose blood is that on the robe? That's his own blood. Okay, this, this should bring us back to the slaughtered lamb on the throne. Okay, he comes not with the blood of his enemies on his robe. It's his own blood. So very different here if we contrast the writer in Revelation 19 uh, with the writer in, in the seal um, sequence. Okay, but I think we can um, make a better case. If we agree that the trumpets, seals, and bowls overlap, Okay, then uh, I think the trumpets is where we can really make our best case uh, for a a demonic reality. Okay, so the first angel blew his trumpet. Hail and fire mixed with blood came pouring down on the earth. And notice one-third of the earth was burned up. And this one-third, it's 14 times, over and over and over, one-third, one-third, one-third in the trumpet sequence. And it's always uh, destructive. Okay, and uh, as some have said here, this should remind us, again, coming back to the, the central uh, description here in Revelation twelve, that this dragon, he swept away one third of the stars. Okay, and that, that rather just seeing this as a quantity, that perhaps this one third is uh, an identifying mark. Okay, and again, I'm I'm quoting from Dr. Tonsted here, but uh, he said that when the influence of Revelation twelve is felt, the recurring third suggests a sense that will not be a reference to quantity. Well, perhaps it is, but it's also an answer to the question of who. Okay, the thirds under the trumpet serve as a signifier of agency, and therefore therefore as a telltale sign of demonic activity. Okay, the revelator perceives in these thirds the fingerprint of Satan on all the instances of disaster and suffering that he catalogs. So again, the the third is is perhaps a marker of uh, agency. Okay, not uh, merely a quantity so we move on to the third trumpet i read this earlier okay the third trumpet is a great star fell and all of your bibles have a little footnote revelation 14. okay so if we agree that revelation 14 is referring to the ancient serpent of old okay then this is describing the great star that fell burning like a torch okay and the rest of the trumpet sequence Again, how you're fallen from heaven. It's, it's this, uh, this poem here in Isaiah. But the rest of the trumpet sequence describes the, uh, then the, the demonic activity. So the fifth trumpet, I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. Notice what he's up to. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now This is, this is a, you know trying to paint a picture here for us. But when he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace. And the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. And then locusts came from the smoke. Okay, who are the locusts? And they descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions. And from their mouths came out fire, smoke, and sulfur. Okay, so um, who, who's, who um, administers fire, smoke, and sulfur? Well, are these good, these scorpions? I mean, if this star from heaven that has the key to the abyss opens us up, these locusts come out, is this a good reality? Well, it becomes pretty clear it isn't because they have a king, okay? Who's their king? He's the angel in charge of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. and we read through this. He is the destroyer. So I think we'd have to say, looking at the trumpet sequence, is the demonic side active? I mean, clearly they're active here. They have a king and he is the destroyer. And again, coming back to Isaiah 14, you have destroyed your land, you have killed your people. Okay, and we, we very rarely incorporate uh, the demonic involved in, in, in the horrible things that happen on this earth, but, but he is the destroyer. Okay, so that's the, uh, the trumpet sequence. And again, if we would agree that, um, that these overlap, as I've tried to make a point here, and if we see the demonic very strongly in the trumpet sequence, well, we can use that perhaps to make a case that this is involved in the seal sequence as well. Now, what about the bowls? And uh, I realize we don't have time to, to do this, so I kind of cut all this out. I'll get right to the chase here. That we have in the bowl sequence, a mighty voice from the temple say to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. And we have, haven't we talked again and again and again about God's wrath in the Old Testament? And the reason this is so important, we don't just read this here in Revelation and blind ourselves you know, to every description of God's wrath throughout the whole Bible. We have, to, we have to take every reference to God's wrath in the Bible. The wrath of the lamb, isn't that an interesting term in Revelation? Uh, have you seen a, a, la- a lamb with wrath? What does that mean? Well, what have we described here in the Old Testament? Again and again, God's wrath. What is it? God's wrath in the Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity. He's always, how can I give you up? How can I let you go? And we associate that with God's wrath. Romans 1, remember where Paul said three times what God's wrath is. He's given them over, given them over, given them over. Okay, and I, I quote this uh, here not as a, a proof, okay, but just for, for some of you, uh, the, the words of someone who wrote these words here on these banners, that I, I found this um, interpretation of the, of the bull sequence uh, one that I would agree with. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way they place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. But then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and if he is not restrained, we shall see more terrible manifestations of his power than we have ever dreamed of. Now, admittedly, this is a minority view of the book of Revelation. Most see all of this, it's God's judgment. It's God's judgment for sin. Okay, I think there is another way of, of it interpreting if we incorporate a cosmic conflict. And I'd like to just uh, state it in conclusion a little bit. Why is this important? I'm going to go back to Daniel. It's, it, sh- I think, should be a part of our reality. Cosmic conflict. Uh, why don't, doesn't prayer seem to be more effective sometimes? We wonder about these things. And, um, you know, Daniel prayed. Nothing happened. 21 days. Okay, and then finally, an angel came 21 days later. I've come in answer to your prayer, and it's like we have this curtain that's pulled back, and we see why wasn't Daniel's prayer answered? What is going on behind the scenes? Okay, and what is going on behind the scenes here is quite incredible. That the angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Who's that? Angel prince of Persia, Persia, and then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Hey, Gabriel needs help. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia who are all these, uh, who are these beings here. And after that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There's no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. And so it's, it's an amazing picture in the Old Testament. We've said there's a relative absence of Satan and the demonic in the Old Testament. Yet here we have this description here. Daniel prays and this seemed to unleash this uh, cosmic conflict. Uh, when we go over uh, Daniel, I'll describe, I think this is going on in the mind of Cyrus, okay? But the, the prayer uh, really has a powerful effect because we enter into the cosmic conflict, um, You know, when we are pray for, prayerfully connected with God. Well, and just one last point here, I mentioned this sobering verse here in Revelation, that everyone worshiped the dragon. Uh, I don't, um, we tend to associate Satan mainly with uh, Halloween and Ouija boards and those kinds of things. But that's, um, uh, that would certainly be a superficial understanding. I, what I take away from the book of Revelation is that we have two pictures, uh, two rivals here that are involved. One is uh, the real God, all powerful, okay, but we see his character here on the throne, the slaughtered lamb, Jesus. We have another who claims, who wants to ascend. And what we see in the book of Revelation is coercive power. Um, A totally different uh, character. So I think we need to incorporate more into our picture of God than than merely power and might. Uh, The the, the, the Pharisees certainly would not have argued whether God is powerful or not. But they didn't know God. They didn't know what God was like. And they looked at Jesus and said he has a devil. So uh, the question is not, is God powerful? The question is, uh, what do we believe about God's character? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for so many images uh, in the Bible, so many vivid images that are meant to um, perhaps uh, force the issue in our mind. What is our understanding of who you are? Pray for each one here that we would come closer to the reality of uh, God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Amen.